The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So I thought it would be nice just to start with a go-round, and you can say your name. And if you feel like it, share a little bit about either uh, an aspiration about why you're here today, or the other thing you might just take a, a minute or so to share is just in that 20-minute sit, that um, relationship between taking responsibility for the ecology of our own mind and body in the moment, and for all of us, to some degree, the sense of responsibility and being moved by the greater crisis in our world, the climate crisis. So just anything about any correlation or anything that came up, any insight, understanding about how our responsibility or unwillingness to take responsibility for our own mind and body and to support healing for our own mind and body, and then how might that inform how we are as a group of beings, maybe not taking care of our wider world. So you want to start? Sure. Oh, and remember, point it right at your mouth. Uh, hi, my name's Chris, and um, well, you said that we should kind of be creatively play with um, what kind of brings um, ease and peace, and and then what brings uh, sort of fractured a fractured mind state. And it's interesting. I, I mean, I I was like, okay, so <laughs> should I purposely try and make myself more? like scattered just to see what's going on. And I was like, I don't know if I'm at that level yet. But <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, well, I, I kind of thought that I was like, okay, well then what can I like trust? And I thought, um, I thought, or the, a word that came to mind was faith in the practice. And that's relating to like trust, you know, and like trusting that this is gonna, you know, trusting that what we're doing is what we should be doing. And, and the other thing is just observing. So it's not just blind faith. It's having faith and then watching what's happening and then seeing how that's, seeing if you're actually, you know, you know, doing something worthwhile. And that also relates to, I guess, kind of the work we do in the world. You know, if we're, if we don't have faith that what we're doing is uh, worthwhile, then we're not going to do it very effectively or like really want to do it even if it's something that is really worthwhile. So I think that's uh, kind of what came up for me. Hello, I'm Jay. I'm here because of just uh, serious concern about the world around me and my world. Hoping to get uh, perspective, probably a different perspective in some ways, which might provide some uh, ideas and ways of thinking. Good morning. My name is Meredith, and um, yes, I've been concerned for a long time. I grew up knowing the out-of-doors as this wonderful place of equanimity. And um, as we've moved into the awareness now of what we've been doing to the environment, some of the things that came to my mind <clears throat> is that I have a lot of fear, and I think that's coming out of a lot of aversion. 
And um, I was thinking, or kind of the, it came to me, you know, just in my own neighborhood, those people who are not recycling and who are doing things, and I thought that's a very divisive feeling and in, in that, you know, I'm trying really hard to do these things. And thinking about putting that on a much larger level of kind of the, the feeling that I have about in so-called people who aren't doing it right and thinking in, in a very broad level about, you know, our bigger world, even Syria or Bangladesh or other countries who... Um, they are really suffering because of climate change, the dryness, the, the drought in Syria and the, and the rising water in Bangladesh, and how they must also feel about those who, you know, are causing the problems that they're dealing with. And it was really kind of a, a real eye-opening thing and um, thinking um, of trying to bring together these two different places in me. Good morning. My name is Ethan. I've been thinking and working on climate issues for a while now, and I feel like I've tried everything, petitions, protests, everything in between, and uh, think what's really needed is more practice. And it's especially as a young person thinking about how my entire world, everything I've known, is going to completely change within my lifetime and uh, really grappling with the moral weight of that and um, and I'm particularly interested in continuing uh, this path for the rest of my life and I really feel like rooting it in practice is going to be the the wellspring I need to draw strength from My name is Sharon, and I'm at an age where I can take responsibility for participating in the harm that was done to the earth out of ignorance and stand on a platform as a, as a person who wants to take responsibility to do what I can to stand for change. Uh, I walk, uh, Sharon Salzberg calls it a balance beam between equanimity on one side and being aware of the suffering that is going on on the other side. That's really important for me to keep my heart open. Uh, I heard on the news coming in here today that a mosque in L.A. was set on fire, and I just said, oh, shit. I mean, uh, there I go on the balance. <laughs> I'm tipping over. But it's, I'm willing to enter the struggle. Let me put it that way. I'm willing to enter the struggle of... Um, uh, not doing it perfectly, but certainly knowing that each each step that I take uh, makes a difference to me, to my grandchildren, to your children, and to this young man next to me. I'm Leslie, and I've been actively involved in uh, community work around this issue for four years. Um, this morning I was just thinking about the fact that I'm dealing with a number of health issues and finding it hard to acknowledge and deal with my health issues and thinking about what that, how I'm not dealing with it effectively and these bigger issues, the health of our planet, um, how we, how I'm not dealing with that as effectively as I would like to. Um, and that I feel like that's, 
the care, that caring that has to be both in both places for me to be effective. Hi, I'm Sharon. Um, I I went I went to a few uh, community meetings back a, a few months ago about climate change, and I have friends and relatives in other parts of the country that still want to deny that it's even happening and that if it is happening, it's not our fault and things like that. And so I'm always kind of ruffled by it and wanting to do something that is within my practice and the, the, the way that I can do it in a compassionate way way and uh, with equanimity and that sort of thing. So um, that's why I'm here today to figure out how, how can I do that within, within that kind of frame of, uh, of involvement. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dave. And I guess the thing that pushed me to come was, uh, I think Thursday I heard that this polymet mine proposal up in, uh, up in northeastern Minnesota, the comment period, ends on, I think, December 15th, or, or now it's extended to the 25th. And I just felt, you know, what's the point? I, I mean, I, I really feel it's going to go in, and, you know, I want to comment, and I need to, to look to change my viewpoint on how I approach these things. And uh, during this set, I, what came up was, was a sense of, of gratitude that I, of everything that I've been given and, and the life that I've been given, and how to live in a more generous way to to put to push some of those things out. Hi, I'm Anne, and um, this morning I um, well I had planned to come here, but I also a group that I've been volunteering for all year um, had planned a protest at nine this morning, which was really important for me to go to, but I. Um, so I had to choose. <laughs> and um, I've done a lot of work um, learning about the issue this year. Um, a lot, a lot of work. I've spent a lot of time volunteering and, and working with messaging and communication around the issue. Um, so at the same time, it has made me feel better to be working, actively working toward um, resolutions and, and fixing things. Um, I still feel like, um, well, the learning has actually caused me to um, feel like hope and hopelessness at the same time, you know. There's, there's a lot of good things happening, but... Um, when you look at the enormity of the problem, um, that's also very serious. And um, so I'm I'm here to just kind of think about what kinds of things might be helpful for me um, to cope with my own feelings about it um, as I go forward and and figure out what what's my place. Um, how much do I want to be involved? Um, and so uh, the thing that Mark said about about um, looking within to see the 
divisiveness within your own mind is really interesting when you when you look at what's all around in the world as a reflection of of the collective consciousness of all of the individuals on the planet it kind of makes sense that each one of us um, it might be helpful to look at that my name is don and uh I wasn't sure if I was going to be here this morning as well. I was uh, here last night at a meditation, and we did a little check-in. And I said, well, um, I could hear myself begrudgingly say, you know, uh, uh, I've been doing um, too much of this meditation. I'm getting saturated. And um, I said, now there's this tomorrow, there's this talk, and I have to move a couch. And I, and I said, I guess moving a couch is more important than global warming, and uh, <laughs> it just resonated in my head all the way home. I'm going, really, really, moving a couch, and uh, and having that couch in that room and having it just right will last for, you know, a little while, then it'll be something else I need to move, and something else, and something else. And it's almost, I was kind of thinking about that, it's almost kind of like the industrial world. It's like, yeah, yeah, we need this skyscraper downtown we need it you know this year you know we okay and then we get that and then it's like uh more stuff and uh moving more stuff and it's oh yeah what do we do with all the the waste around that and in the meantime you know it's filling up the the car to go get the couch and um you know how much uh stuff is being you know uh pollution is putting in the air and then what do you do with the old couch and um, on and on, and so, and then the other glimmer that came to me too is, um, you know, I've heard uh, once in a while I hear uh, uh, Obama and uh, the rest, you know, going to these uh, summits uh, on global warming, and and in snippets I'm like, oh, well, you know, what are they all doing there at these things? And what comes out is, you know, uh, oh, China, or or we're not gonna, we don't want to do that because you know it's going to have some other effect, and so. Um, you know, so the, then you hear the summit's over, but nothing really happened, and and so I'm uh, so it feels good to be here. I'm really grateful that I, I was sitting here this morning and and thinking how really I get to take some time out and really look at this and and uh, really um, take time out and say, you know, I really want to give this some thought today, and um, I felt the energy of the room. I said, you know, I can. Uh, I can get on this uh, collective and, and, and see where this goes um, as a collective instead of just an individual coming to this and having my own thoughts. I can be uh, part of a collective uh, thinking about this. My name is Sarah. Um, divisiveness was what brought me here. Um, I'm having and have had for a couple of years a very strong feeling of discontent around my inability to mentally accommodate um, the destruction of the biosphere. Um, especially a feeling that every one of us as a species should be feeling a sense of panic, basically, and urgency 
while at the same time in my own life feeling a sense of futility at how much inertia there is basically around the destructiveness of our lifestyles. Um, I like the mention of contentment because of course if that could spread out and everybody could be content with exactly what they need and then distribute the rest to what to other people who need it perhaps we could settle enough to stop our destructiveness um, I wish I felt a clearer sense of how how that could happen Hi, I'm, I'm Trevor. Um, don't mind me, I'm just working on some homework here. But um, uh, I, I think about climate change a lot, and I think it's just really nice to be here and hear um, all the different thoughts that people are having and everyone's different perspectives. So it's nice to kind of not feel like I'm, you know, uh, fighting the battle alone in my head. So. Good morning, I'm Kaya, and... I've been um, engaged with climate change for a long time now. It's um, really drawn me for many years, maybe because I wasn't able to have children, and so I think I was able to look more directly at what was happening around me than a lot of my friends who were focused on their little ones. So um, over the years, um, thanks to Mark, I've had the opportunity to present some um, workshops here. I've studied with Joanna Macy, and that's been really gratifying. And just recently, um, a couple of other people from the Sangha and I took a course called Ecosatva that was offered around the globe. And um, it was a very deep uh, course, and I think for all of us who went through it, it was very transformative. And I... Um, you know, many things happen, kind of like what Trevor was referring to. Um, in our breakout groups, there was such a relief for people all over the globe to know I'm not alone in this. I, this is a group where I don't have to feel alienated, isolated. I can really speak about what's in my heart. And just seeing over and over again that when we can create communities where people can come from their heart and kind of understand how the suffering and the beauty are so intertwined because we are all interconnected. And um, I was not surprised, but very moved by how our Buddhist practice is really a way forward in how we can respond both on a personal level and a global level to, to climate change. So um, some of us are now talking about how we can bring some of this forward, make it more available in this Sangha and some of the other Sanghas in the in the metro area, and I'm grateful to be here with you. I can feel the same kind of comfort in the collective as we do open our hearts this way, and and know it's possible. If we can do it, it's really possible for everyone. It's just the kind of conversations and the kind of grounding that we have. So, uh, my name is Lincoln. Uh, <clears throat> Lots of people have said lots of my thoughts. Um, I was, the invitation um, for this, um, for this day was um, gratifying as a 
place to talk about and to explore sort of the angst and the contradictions and the, the struggles of trying to exist in this uh, very um, dichotomous world. I've been working in the environmental sector for quite a few years, and so I work around people who are very conscious and uh, and do uh, great things, which is very gratifying. Um, and we don't really talk much about the, you know, the the angst and the ups and downs and what's going on personally. Uh, you know, I see a lot of people riding bicycles and buses, and um, I mean, just all sorts of things. And uh, I work to do the same. Um, at the same time, I hate riding the bus, both because um, I am terrible about uh, getting to places on time. So I get to experience weights quite often when I do that. Uh, but I also do, uh, you know, a lot of things personally to the degree that I can and believe that those little things help. At the same time, it's so hard to see um, because it is, um, it's so overwhelming. And uh, sometimes I just feel such deep hopelessness. And I don't feel hopeless for Mother Nature because I know Mother Nature will be just fine. Um, I feel... Uh, you know, bad about really the the effect on humans. I think that all the other pieces of Mother Nature are changing and shuffling and coming and going, and uh, we may do the same in the end. But uh, it would be nice to at least leave this world feeling like um, something is improving for my children and everybody's children and those going forward. And it's nice to have a place to talk about all that, ups and downs. I'm Nancy, and like uh, many folks have mentioned, my, my primary reason for being here is to um, have some sense of community about this. I feel like I've been working for quite a few years now to make changes in my own life, and those have been very incremental, unfortunately, and, uh, you know, I find myself uh, a lot of times somewhere between, you know, intense frustration and and despair over this, and so it's dawning on me uh, there's a real need for community in in my case. And then as far as the exercise, um, whenever I sit, there's always a point in in the sit where I realize something like, I don't like what's appearing in the mind. And so right away this morning I noticed that. And um, and I, I do see the parallels between that and our approach to uh, climate change because I, I, I think it's also true with social justice work, which I've done um, uh, some of in the past. Uh, you know, you, you look at the situation and you see it and there's this big contraction. I don't like it. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And it seems to me there might be a way to go forward without that, that big contraction. So that's part of what I'm here hope to, hopefully to learn about. I'm Nate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, 
Yeah, and the sit this morning, Mark, you kind of spoke directly to it. M- my experience that I was having when um, when you talked about words, so I noticed just a lot of chatter going on about this subject in my mind, and uh, a lot of arguing going on, and all the attendant emotions. I, can, I resonate with those of you who have said you've been sort of working with this for for quite some time, and you know I've been to the marches and been involved in various actions and spent just way too much time trying to figure it out. Um, so yeah, I was struck this morning by that, by being able to see that. Um, how do I approach this without all of that noise or without being caught up in all that noise that's going on? Um, you know, there's a lot of history there, and so there's a lot to be said to myself. But is that really the, really helpful in this moment? Thanks. Hello, my name is Vicki, and I'm I'm grateful to be here today. And um, like probably all of you, I, I do feel overwhelmed often uh, about what's happening to the natural world, and um, and I suppose like most of you, at a very young age, I've felt deeply. Um, connected with nature and, and loved it and loved being in it and to see things change. I'm 64 now to see the changes that took place and all the hope that the 70s represented and with Earth Day and um, and things kind of going down and going, but it, at the same time, awareness is going up. So it's it's like the best of times and the worst of times in, in terms of Awareness, and I'm grateful to be here on this day when um, hopefully there is a, a, a turning point worldwide in looking at what we can do um, for the environment in terms of, of climate change. Um, and it's it's not like what what, what uh, uh, McGibbon said. It's not like it changed the uh, that it saved the planet today, but it gave us an opportunity and a chance to. It, um, work towards saving the the planet and climate change and um, we just take the next best step and being persistent is 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 important uh, I believe in in working at a, at a grassroots level to do what you can it it really uh, helps me um, not uh, it helps me t- uh, to participate in moving forward, and it might seem like little efforts, but they all do add up in that um, in making a difference in in my neighborhood i 've been working for tw- uh, twenty years as um, an environmental activist and with different uh, types of projects and i've um, i 'm also here today to see how to be more open in, in listening to people and how to uh, deliver a message that will connect one of, of hope, but yet have the information there for people to um, to look at and and, uh, and move with. And um, anyways, I, I, I work with uh, native plants uh, restoration and, and and projects, and and we chose to um, uh, do a community outreach program. Um, with, with the, having the monarch butterfly being the the ambassador for um, growing, uh, working with native plants in your own yard, and uh, 
and so I do give a, a lot of talks, and the, the, the first thing um, that I do is, is, I think, lead with love, you know, why are we all here, um, what brings us together, um, and uh, the monarch does bring a lot of people together, so it, 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 it speaks to larger issues. The, the, actually, it's, it's amba- uh, the monarch is, a, is an ambassador for a number of things, including climate change and all this other, and what we eat and all this stuff, but, but kind of focusing on what, um, where the love is in the group and, uh, and then delivering a message of, of, of how we can act with hope and, and, and doing just a little thing can make a difference and it's empowering for people to do that, that little thing and it grows from there. Because, I mean, if we can maybe deliver some habitat for the monarch, we can look at um, bigger issues <laughs> of related to uh, climate change and that hopefully that's imp- it's empowering. Thank you. Hi, um, my name's Mina, and I'm also known as Mina. I'm known as both. You can call me Mina. Um, I've just been writing down people's names and a little bit of information because I really appreciate being here and really want to get to know you and take it all in. Um, Like so many of you, I feel like I've walked this path and I've tried everything and (laughs) where it's all led eventually is I'm an artist and an art teacher and um, I just keep working on the environment in my art and so in in the fall I work on bare bones and so I'm outside working at the Mississippi River week after week after week to produce a big Halloween Dia de los Muertos show and in the winter I work on the ice on the art shanty project and uh, if it's if it's going and then in the spring and so I'm out in the freezing you know 20 below zero with all my gear doing bringing art to the people and then in the spring I work on the Mayday Parade and the monarch butterfly almost always is in the parade and and uh, is a symbol of love and hope. And then in the summer, I work on bicycle art and do bring art all over the community. And so uh, that's how I've ended up putting my energy uh, because I have so much energy around this and it's so confusing, like all of you say, and the contradictions and the pain. And so, um, yeah, so I'm one of these people that likes to get things done and act in the world. Uh, so trying to practice Buddhism is a really big counterweight for me and a very important spot to, for me to come. And I just, I'm fortunate. I come from a Quaker background. Um, and as to Sarah and maybe more of you, I don't know, but at any rate, I was raised as a Quaker, and so I had a lot of contemplative time as a child, Um, and I had a lot of, my parents also took me camping a lot, and um, so anytime you get to spend a lot of time with nature, I think it really both calms you and energizes you, and and to see the resiliency of nature and know that nature's not going away. Nature's here to stay, Um, But how we fit in 
as a human people, as a species, uh, remains to be seen. So um, it's an ongoing transformational project. And <laughs> um, I'm one of these people that tends to like kind of flow along and really love being alive. And um, I see the future, and it's very frightening. I have sons who are in their 20s, and you know I don't know what the future holds for the next generation. And yet, at the same time, it's like, well, you just do the best you can and uh, keep being awake and alert to what's happening right now so you can respond in the right way. Like, you can put on a wool sweater in the morning if you need to or wear sandals. Um, I really love um, being alert and aware of the environment, so walking outside... Um, stepping outside, even for a minute, uh, looking out a window when I'm at work, trying to just notice, like, the many expressions of the planet. It's really meaningful to me. Uh, my name is John. Uh, I'm, uh, I kind of aspire to... Uh, to be a Buddhist. So the uh, things like climate change, uh, I see it as it's one of these things out there. Um, You know, like other things, uh, like politics or whatever. It's like a catalyst for my own delusions or divisiveness. Um, you know, there's a grasping. Things should be better. It should be this way. Your ill will. Um, you know, these things are all out there. I mean, it just it's triggering. You know, my own delusions. So this uh, this this day, that's what I'd like to look at. Is yeah. The divisive uh, mind, the deluded mind, is being reflected by these th- things out- outside. Really good to hear from everybody. I think it's a good way to begin the work and <clears throat> and to right from the very start, to have a sense of um, the mutual, collective uh, approach as opposed to top-down or looking for some divine being to save us. Or, and, uh, and, and what that I think will bring up, you know, like being honest about the confusion and about the false, not false steps, but missteps and uh, seeming dead ends and the futility of some of our steps. And um, but, but I think what's really good for a group of us to gather today like we're doing is uh, 
not about what's going to come out of our workshop or our time, but the quality of our experience being here together, a little bit like what we did at the opening set, taking responsibility for our own body and mind. But now today, we can take responsibility for the integrity and the clarity and the integratedness of our conversation and our being together. And uh, like, if it seems really superficial to you, I'm out of here, right? It's like, well, what does that look like in the bigger picture of the globe? You know, like, first of all, there's no out of here. (laughs) (laughs) But to kind of stick, I mean, I, I don't know if everyone can stay the whole day. Hopefully you can. Ideally you will. But this sense of like, okay, let's see in this very micro way if we can take responsibility and make something harmonious and and sustaining, right? That Like whatever we're doing isn't going to be born, live for a while, and then die, but that somehow whatever we do today makes an imprint in our heart that lives on. And I don't mean that in an idealistic way. This is what we mean by karma in Buddhism. What are we setting in motion? And the thing about karma, what's set in motion through the qualities of our own mind, the Buddha is very clear. It can't be stopped. There's nowhere, you know, he goes on in great detail. There's nowhere on this planet, no cleft in the mountain, no cave, no bottom of the ocean, where you, where anyone, any being can hide from karma. Because it's nature. If something gets set in motion, it will express itself, right? And as it's expressing itself, it keeps affecting whatever it meets. So if we practice denial or writing each other off or venting in ways that are unproductive, you know, blaming the guy in the suit or whatever, um, all of which represents some sliver of truth, if not more, but we want to be awake to what we're setting in motion. Um, that's why I thought sitting in a circle made more sense too, to, to reinforce a sense of mutuality collective responsibility, and non-denial, like there's no hiding. There's no sort of seeing who's going to take the lead, how we're going to go forward. I thought it might be nice to uh, start with uh, something I heard from Joanna Macy recently, and uh, not in person, but through one of her recordings, videos. And... uh, And I know she brings it up quite a bit, and I think she brings it up in Active Hope, her book, which I think is quite good. Um, But just uh, asking the right questions, and this is a big deal in Buddhism too. The Buddha was uh, really um, interested in asking the right question, the importance of asking the right question. And if somebody came to him and asked a question that wasn't anywhere close to being a right question, he would sometimes not even respond. And sometimes if someone asked a question and it was a little closer to being a useful question, then he would would restate the person's question. This is what you should be asking. You know, not that, but this. This is what I think you're really getting at here. And then, of course, if someone did ask a good question, he would acknowledge, this is a good question. This is the question to be asking. So... 
you know, Joanna Macy, who's one of our real elders in this work of learning how best to relate and respond to the world we live in, um, really highlights the uh, essentialness, the enormity of asking the right question. Something like, you know, how to relate or how we can relate to this crisis and how can we relate to the uncertainty of the crisis and the inertia that we find in our own hearts and around us. How can we relate in a way that's enlivening and enriching, that's wise and compassionate? So it's it's really like what we're looking for in our engagement today, in our interactions today, we're <clears throat> trying to discern or uncover and bring alive like a way of relating to what we call this crisis, this environmental crisis, a way of relating that is itself beautiful. Because, as many of you pointed out in different ways, we don't know what's going to happen. Nobody knows. Nobody can know what's going to happen because it hasn't. It all hasn't been written yet. You know, it's, we're writing it right now. You know, we're responding right now. We're so. What's going to happen is getting created right now. So because we can't have any sort of proof or guarantee that good things are going to happen, but what we can do is get really interested that the engagement itself is beautiful and enlivening and healing, even if there's some kind of great environmental destruction, like just imagine the worst scenario in terms of species on this planet um, becoming extinct or mass, you know, just a lot of suffering, human suffering, or anything that you might imagine as a bad result that may be, but what's entirely within our capacity is to right now and then in an ongoing way relate to this in a really beautiful way, in a way that has a strong flavor of wisdom and compassion, of of um, non-fear, of this mutuality or this connection with community, like on all levels, with our loved ones, with our each circle, all beings on this planet, seen and unseen. So I thought what might be nice to begin with is to tune into one of our elders. Uh, some of you know Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's from the Bronx originally, but as a young man went to um, Sri Lanka, ordained as a Buddhist monk, and became one of the great scholars. And uh, But lately, now he's in his 70s, he's become quite an activist. He started the Buddhist um, relief fund that mostly now collecting quite a bit of money and mostly just gives it to people who are starving around the world and uh, and has been quite involved in uh, this environmental movement too recently and very powerful voice. And, and this summer he wrote a response to the Pope Francis's uh, encyclical about climate change and I thought we could just read it. So um, why doesn't everybody, uh, every other person take one? That will get us around the room. And that means it's about 10 paragraphs. So 
We'll have 10 people each read one of the paragraphs out loud. And uh, maybe to make it quick, we won't use the... Should we use the mic? Let's use the mic. That will, that will give a nice little pause between each of the paragraphs. And wait till everybody has it. And then let's just listen to one of our elders because, you know, the point of having the conversation at Common Ground today... I mean, we should have this conversation in all kinds of communities, of course. But the point of having it here today is to bring in a particular flavor that the Buddhist teachings can bring to this engagement, this conversation. Looks like both of you need to keep one. Okay. So, Chris, we'll start when everyone's settled, and then we'll just... Take a little pause between each of the paragraphs. Climate change is a moral issue. A Buddhist response to Pope Francis's climate change encyclical by Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so on June 18th, Pope Francis issued a papal encyclical pointing to climate change as the overriding moral issue of our time. The encyclical boldly proclaims that humanity's capacity to alter the climate charges us with the greatest, with the gravest moral responsibility we have ever had to bear. Climate change affects everyone. The disruptions to the biosphere occurring today bind all peoples everywhere into a single human family. Our fates inseparably intertwined. No one can escape the impact, no matter how remotely they may live from the bustling centers of industry and commerce. The responsibility for Preserving the planet falls on everyone. The future of human life on Earth hangs in a delicate balance, and the window for effective action is rapidly closing. Tipping points and feedback loops threaten us as ominously as nuclear warheads. What heightens the danger is our proclivity to apathy and denial. For this reason, we must begin tackling the crisis with an act of truth by acknowledging that climate change is real and stems from human activity. On this, the science is clear. The consensus among climate scientists almost universal. The time for denial, skepticism, and delay is over. Our carbon-based economies generate not only mountains of commodities, but also heat waves and floods, rising seas and creeping deserts. The climate mirrors the state of our minds, reflecting back to us the choices we have made at regional, national, and global levels. These choices, both collective and personal, are inescapably ethical. They are strung out between what is convenient and what is right. They determine who will live and who will die, which communities will flourish and which will perish. Ultimately, they determine nothing less than whether human civilization itself will survive or collapse. Since religions command the loyalty of billions, 
They must lead the way in the endeavor to combat climate change, using their ethical insights to mobilize their followers. As a non-theistic religion, Buddhism sees our moral commitments as stemming not from the decree of a creator god, but from our obligation to promote the true well-being of ourselves and others. Oh, you can give it to Sarah, yeah. Thank you. The Buddha traces all immoral conduct to three mental factors, which he calls the three unwholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed propels economies to voraciously consume fossil fuels in order to maximize profits, ravaging the finite resources of the earth and filling its sinks with toxic waste. Hatred underlies not only war and bigotry, but also the callous indifference that allows us to consign billions of people to hunger, drought, and devastating floods without batting an eye. Delusion, self-deception, and the deliberate deceiving of others is reinforced by the falsehoods churned out by the fossil fuel interests to block remedial action. We thus need to curb the influence of greed, hatred, and delusion on the operation of social systems. Policy formation must be motivated not by narrow self-interest, but by magnanimous spirit of generosity, compassion, and wisdom. An economy premised on infinite expansion, geared toward endless production and consumption, has to be replaced by steady-state economy governed by the principle of sufficiency, which gives priority to contentment, service to others, and inner fulfillment as the measure of the good life. The moral tide of our age pushes us in two directions. One is to uplift the living standards of the billions mired in poverty, struggling each day to survive. The other is to preserve the integrity and sustaining capacity of the planet. A rapid transition to an economy powered by clean and renewable resources of energy with transfers of the technology to developing countries would enable us to accomplish both, to combine social justice with ecological sustainability. At the very outset, we must start the transition by making highly specific national and global commitments to curb carbon emissions, and we must do so fast. The conference of the parties meeting in Paris this December has to show the way. The meeting must culminate in a climate accord that imposes truly rigorous binding and enforceable targets for the emissions reductions. Pledges and promises alone won't suffice. Enforcement mechanisms are critical. And beyond a strong accord, we'll need an international endeavor undertaking, undertaken with a compelling sense of urgency to shift the global economy away from fossil fuels to clean sources of energy. Pope Francis reminds us that climate change poses not only a policy challenge, but also a call to the moral conscience. If we continue to burn fossil fuels to empower unbridled economic growth, 
the biosphere will be destabilized, resulting in unimaginable devastation, the deaths of many millions, failed states, and social chaos. Shifting to clean and renewable energy can reverse this trend, opening pathways to a steady-state economy that uplifts living standards for all. One way leads deeper into the culture of death, the other leads to a new culture of life. As climate change accelerates, the choices before us is becoming starker and the need to choose wisely grows ever more urgent. Let's just sit for a moment with that, just a few seconds. So I thought that's a good way for us to begin on common ground. You know, this statement from Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, one of our real leaders in this particular lineage of Buddhism, a respected leader. And uh, and, and what I think is a, a very, it's not just a teaching on Buddhism, it's a real political statement that he wrote, um, which I think is good because this is a social political issue that we're dealing with. And then the question now for us as we move forward in our conversation today is, as I mentioned, that essential question coming from Joanna Macy, I mean, it's a question we'd all have probably, you know, how to relate to this, to these facts that we just heard from Bhikkhu Bodhi and the urgency in his voice that probably mirrors our own concern and the so-called seriousness of this problem. Because there can be, you know, there's a shadow in Buddhism of a dismissiveness of the relative world. You know, the world of climate change and inequities and the world of having a body and, you know, having to clean the toilet once a month. I mean, these things, well, it's just stuff. You know, it's just stuff. There's definitely the shadow in, in Buddhism. It's not inherent in the Buddhist teachings, I don't think, but we always use whatever we pick up, the Buddhist teachings or whatever else, we always use it for the ego's ends, you know, which is, I don't want to be bothered. I'm too busy to be bothered. And so we do it this, you know, we do that same thing with, with these teachings. So I thought the with that question, you know, how do we relate to this crisis, to these facts on the ground as we see them? How do we relate in a way that's enlivening and liberating and full of love and wisdom? How do we do that? That's really the question. And it really, I think, comes down to this, as I mentioned before, the quality of compassion, to see wisdom and compassion as two sides of the same thing, maybe two sides of three things, or two of three sides of the same thing, with liberation. So we have wisdom, like that clarity. And in Buddhism, wisdom really means the mind is discerning the roots, like it sees the lawfulness of the predicament that we're in. Like greed always leads to more greed, right? We have an economy or civilizations 
operating on greed, greed doesn't lead to ah contentment. Greed leads to wanting more. People, a couple of people share that, you know, on the go round. That's just it shouldn't surprise us. You know, I saw this in my own mind. I remember seeing this fifth, uh, five, six years of age around Christmas. You know, it's like it didn't matter at that point. By the time I got to be six or seven, I remember. But I, re- I remember the Christmas. I remember the presents I got. It was a big helicopter. You know, then the blades went around, and so it was like sixty-three, sixty-four, and uh, and I remember. The very distinct feeling, it was like such a mostly bitter, sweet feeling of, this is it? You know, because there is no way my parents, Santa Claus, <laughs> sorry, I hope I'm not breaking the news to anyone. <laughs> There's no way they could match my desire, because where is the end of desire? Have you found it? No, there's no end of desire. It doesn't have an end. There's always more. And so it's, uh, it's really like, the key, I think, what Bhikkhu Bodhi means by the culture of death. You know, when we're on that path, it's really a contracted, not an enlivening, not a path, not a way of love and wisdom, clarity. So the wisdom piece really sees the roots the compassion piece is this capacity to be close. And the liberation piece is that there's no weight in the clarity, no weight in being close. It's not a heavy trip to be close. The heavy trip is when we're trying to run, right? Keep ahead of the wave, right? You, so we imagine, let's say we're relatively awake and we imagine or we sense this climate crisis. And so we're... We're going to try to outrun it. We got our 40 acres. We got our little solar garden. We got our little rain retention. We got our little, you know. And we just now we're worried, like, how many people should I let know about my 40 acres? In case things go really south, you know, I don't want people showing up. You know, I want the right people showing up. I mean, it's that, even that little utopia of doing the right thing, can be its own trap. And this is what leads to the futility, which is its own trap, right? Its own kind of descent into the opposite of wisdom, the clarity of wisdom, the intimacy of compassion, and the lightness of liberation, right? So as we engage this, this is what we want to take responsibility for having a response that's enlivening, that's liberating, that's clear, that's intimate, not superficial. Sure, yeah. Asking the right question and then asking it of somebody, the right people, but that implies that I'm willing to listen. And sometimes I Right, but the question has to come out of that reality, right? 
So the question we're asking has to come out of the reality that some people don't get it. And some people get it and are really angry. Some people get it and are really um, closing down or building their 40 acres, you know. So what's the right question given all of that? So the right question comes out of having been pushed around, all of us, you know, in this roller coaster of, you know, sometimes being in denial, sometimes being the the great savior on the white horse riding into the battle, sometimes just being angry and wanting to hurt somebody because nobody's listening. I mean, we've had a lot of different, all of us, we've had different responses, which is another way of saying we've learned some things, right? Even in making mistakes, we learn things. So the question is then, because asking the right question, we need to value how important it is to ask the right question. How do I... Um, how do I relate in a way with those people who don't get it? How do I relate in a way that's enlivening and not deadening for me? Right? That supports engagement, supports the joy of engagement, the joy of connecting with others, the joy of responding in an intimate way instead of a disconnected way. Mm-hmm. I wonder if um, asking the right question is deadening for me if I expect a certain answer. Mm-hmm. If I expect somebody to respond in a certain way or I'm disappointed and or I'm judgmental or angry or all of that. So where's that coming from in me, that question? Do I want it? Yeah. yeah. Well, because on some level it's not easy for us to get completely beyond fear. And as long as we're part of fear, we're still in the game of what's created this. Nations invade other nations. Corporations build these things. We buy these products because we're afraid of being discontent or unhappy or not complete. And so it's the same with our relationship to climate change. If we use fear, we're feeding the beast, basically. The, the, what do you call it? The culture of death or the lifestyle of death, of contraction. So we know, you know, it's one of those things. We sort of know it when we find it. And it's, so, and it's not like just one time. We have to keep asking ourselves, what problem are we trying to solve here? Are we trying to stop global climate change? Or are we trying to set in motion a culture of life and love and wisdom, clarity, right? What are we trying to do here? And if we have a specific end, like some kind of planetary utopia, it's not that different than somebody's planetary utopia being really beautiful malls where you can get everything you want. And now it's like, I want that old downtown, you know, the old, where you can walk along. The, it will always be something, right? So we can turn the sort of steady state, 
sustainable image into its own uh, justification for war and hatred and eliminating the weeds, you know, the ignorant people who don't get it. Because, I mean, this is like the, did she pronounce it Ayn Rand? The woman who wrote Fountainhead? Is it Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand? Anyway, you know, she wrote a while back, but she, I read that book a long time ago, you know, back in the 70s probably, but I don't remember the details. But this idea that the wise among us, you know, it's just too much of a burden to convert all of you out there who are ignorant and caught up in consumerism or, you know, however. You, so we're going to go to Shambhala or Shangri-La or wherever and start our own little magical place where everything will be perfect. And that always, it always ends up with genocide or some kind of terrible thing. So instead of, this is part of the reason why to take some time to ask the right question, because it really has to do with, um, like engagement, the engagement coming out of the right question, not the answer, but the engagement, like what to do next, how to relate. And I thought actually that one way to do this as a, group activity is to, uh, I'm sure a lot of you know Thich Nhat Hanh's wonderful poem, Call Me By My True Name. True Names, is it? Please call me by my, please call me by my true names. And uh, the nice thing about it is he, it's this play of opposites. And I'll read it in just a moment. And I thought around climate change, we could write a couple more stanzas. And then just share them with each other because it's a pretty simple format. Don't worry if you haven't heard it before. But before I do that, I'll just mention that this kind of play of opposites where we embrace the, the darkness, we see both the beauty and the dark or the light and the dark and everything uh, is really helpful. And it relates to Tibetan Buddhist practice, Tonglen, where we actively... Breathe in the darkness, breathe in the suffering, and give away the light, give away the love as a divine circulation, right? And what it really is doing, it's breaking down our own barriers, right? Or the own, our own tendency to be asking the right question, or to be asking the wrong question, like, how can I be safe? Which is... What we really, that's why we're afraid of the people who don't get it, because we think they're going to blow it for the rest of us. In other words, me and the people I care about, which may be all beings, but it's still divisive. It's still based on this fear. So, first I'll read this poem by Mary Oliver. She wrote, I believe, after 9 11, Wage Peace. Maybe some of you have heard it. She's a wonderful um, poet. If you haven't read her stuff, I. Recommend it. She really uses nature quite a bit to inspire her wisdom and poetry. So again, it's Wage Peace by Mary Oliver. Wage peace with your breath. Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children and freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in the fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships intact. 
Wage peace with your listening, hearing sirens, pray loud. Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothespins, clean rivers, make soup, play music, learn the word for thank you in three languages, learn to knit and make a hat. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. Imagine grief as the out-breath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Swim for the other side. Wage peace. Never has the world seemed so fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act Act as if armistice has already arrived. Don't wait another minute. So now, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, but uh, let's pass out some paper and pens. Maybe someone can do that. And uh, I can do the paper if you do the pens. So we'll do our own version of this after we hear Thich Nhat Hanh's version. So the, the, again, the great thing about these poems, and this poem I'm about to read, um, most of you know Thich Nhat Hanh, but he's a long-time peace activist, environmental activist, and another Buddhist monk uh, born in Vietnam. Got kicked out as a peace activist during the Vietnam War in the late 60s when he went to the Paris Peace Talks, and then has been teaching in the West since. And he's quite old now and is... Maybe late 80s now. But it's it's really a direct uh, um, sort of opposition or a direct uh, putting down of duality. Right, That's the whole point of the poem. So here, I'll read it, and then we can do some writing. Please call me by my true names. Do not say that I'll depart tomorrow, because even today I still arrive. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on the spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is, of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird which, when spring comes, arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond, and I am the grass snake who approaching in silence, feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I'm the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Pulitzer Bureau, 
with plenty of power in my hands, and I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. Please call me by my true names, so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names, so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open, the door of compassion. Remember, compassion is this capacity to be intimate, and we're intimate with the beauty and with the sorrow. So the form, it's very simple that we can do. I am the, and then state something that you can connect with that's beautiful about the environment, about the environmental movement, about nature, about your relationship with life. I am, you know, I am the person eating a raw carrot just pulled out of the earth, right? That could be a line. And then I am the person who's slowly filling his body with chemicals, human-made chemicals that can never get processed by the biology of my body. So you can make your own few phrases. It always starts with I am, and then something beautiful, something enlivening in your relationship to this life we have. And then I am, and then something that's true with the results of our ignorant way of relating, right? The fruits, the karmic fruits of greed, anger, and delusion that we see out there or that we experience in our own mind, in our own body. Get the sense of how to do this? So let's just take, and also it's okay to take time to go to the bathroom. We'll just take five minutes, seven minutes, write a couple stanzas. Some of you may write several. And then we'll just go around and you can read the ones you want to read to the group. Okay? Uh, I'm the farmer uh, growing food, organic farmer growing food for the hungry. I am the insects being killed by the farmer to produce the crop. I'm the person with fossil fuel-based income that supports my, my life and my family. I'm the being living on the planet, being damaged by excess release of carbon. I am snug in my bed under my quilt in my house with my heat turned on and the insulation keeping me safe and warm. I am freezing in a ratty sleeping bag on an old piece of cardboard on a stormy night under a cement bridge. I am the forest abundant with life from soft earthen floor to protective canopy. I am the lighter of the match, seeking short-term profit from the forest demise with little consideration of life taken. I am the captive child, tortured, used, and cast aside. I am the tormentor of children. Uh, 
I am an open-hearted child looking at the world with wide-eyed wonderment and a desire to connect. I am a jaded old geezer wanting to obliterate the world or at least hole up with mindless entertainment or pull the covers up over my head, anything to avoid connecting with what is. I am the water sweet to drink, filling life. I am the chemist making poisons to feed greed and kill Earth's soul. I am the forest of life's beginning, middle, and end. I am the factory made of wood and using trees to expand my wealth. I am the farmer watching intently to see if the winds blow my neighbor's GMO seeds onto my organic fields. I am the Roundup salesman, sure that with this product, we'll be able to feed the whole world. I am the eco-chaplain counseling those grieving the cut-off mountaintops in North Carolina. I am the African government administrator relieved that the coal mines China is building here will bring my people into the 21st century economic prosperity at last. I am the ant touching a companion's antennae as she offers sweet food. I am the human placing sweet poison near an ant's nest. I am the product of consumerism, strong bones and a strong body and mind. I am the landfill where birds pack and dogs and children make a living. I am the ray of mist arising from the great waterfalls of the world. And I am the nuclear decay and the cold mine dust that settles in your lungs. I am the eagle soaring in the thermals. I am the drone pilot circling for the kill. I am the pileated woodpecker hammering on the dead jack pine. I am the cop beating the helpless teen. I am an infant breathing first breaths and sensing mother from the outside. I am the mother unable to breathe freely due to secondhand smoke and pollution during my childhood. I am a flower budding on a spring morning, and I am the earth that lies fallow, polluted by oil and tar. I'm the mother who wants nothing so much as to see happiness on my child's face, so I spend the money I have to buy them things they will forget tomorrow. I'm the child who delights in the new, in the thing, in the attention of my mother, all of it fleeting. It will all begin anew tomorrow. I am the Chippewa Indian savoring the fruits of our wild rice fields, that which supports me and my tribe. I am the pipeline company which sends fracked oil through the most convenient route right through the rice fields. I am the sandstone cave cut from the cliffs of the mighty Mississippi. I am the immigrant child on Houston's East End choking on asthmatic breaths from the petrochemical cancer refinery next door. I am the shareholder who pockets a cool, quiet million from my coal investments.
I am the mother hen who clings to her chicks and tries to protect them from the fox. I am the fox who wants to greet the chicks. I am the snow that chases the snowbird south to avoid me. I am the snow that delights the children and brings them out of doors in winter. I, <clears throat> I am the wanderer, journeyer, traveling through a sea of foul air, gasping, then catching a space clear, life-giving. I am the great redwood tree stretching for over 1,000 years, and I am the lumber company mutilating swaths of old-growth forest. I am the student who stands up for the dignity of my brothers and sisters, and I am the administration who cannot yet listen and hear the needs of the meek. I am the wildfire burning through the prairie to make room for new life, and I am the farmer removing weeds from my rows of corn. There's a great... uh metaphor in the Buddhist tradition came later, not, not at the time of the Buddha, several centuries later, this wonderful image came. And I think it was also used in the yogic mystic tradition too. Uh, you might have heard of it called Indra's net. Do people know about that? So it's, it's a metaphor used to, um, to explain both the infinite complexity and beauty and interdependence and essential emptiness of what we call this, this existence, this life, the reality. Yeah, and I think it came up in the Mahayana school of Buddhism in the third century, according to my notes here. And here is a particular description from a scholar. Far away in the heaven, heavenly abode of the great god Indra, Right, which comes out of the Hindu tradition. There is a wonderful net which has been hung by some cunning craftsperson in such a manner that it stretches out infinitely in all directions. Now you got to imagine this, a net, you know, like woven net, but it's multidimensional, stretching out in all directions in accordance with the extravagant tastes of the deities, right, the divine beings, this craftsperson has hung a single glittering jewel in each eye of the net, in each intersection of the net. Right? So you have a net, multidimensional net, stretching out in all directions. So an infinite number of those intersections. Each intersection has a beautiful, perfect jewel reflecting perfectly. What does it reflect perfectly? Right? Like a star. Um, each jewel, each facet of the jewel is reflecting the light being reflected from all the other jewels, like a perfect mirror reflecting the perfect reflections of all the other jewels. Right? Kind of gives you a sense of the glittering, reflective, but completely interdependent. But it's just reflections, right? It's not much of anything, right? It's just stuff being reflected. What's being reflected? Well, what's being reflected is just stuff that's already been reflected. You see? It's kind of built out of emptiness. Just a lot of reflecting going on. But amazing. Truly amazing. 
and truly interdependent. Right? It's a nice image. I mean, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's a nice metaphor. Basically, because uh, as dire, as dark as things actually seem to be, and not just in terms of global warming, but you know, when we look at some of the intractable wounds and expressions of our historic trauma around race and other kinds of systemic inequities that we have in our societies, that it, and they're not unrelated, of course, too. And it's, you know, partly because our mind, the more primitive nature of our mind, which just wants to survive on this physical level, its vision is somewhat limited. So we just see the darkness. But we don't want to deny the darkness or the risk or the, you know, driving off, the sense of driving off a cliff or the sense of impending doom. But we don't want to notice that. We don't want to open up to that or be truthful about that to the exclusion of other things. Later this afternoon when we come back for lunch, I thought I'd do it. We do it a little later when it would be a little bit warmer. I thought in small groups we could just go outside. There's a park not too far. And just do, I'll I'll give you more information about it later, but even here in a city, right, in the middle of a big city, relatively big city, it's not a terrible part of town, but it's still a city. Even here, you know, there are monarchs. There are, not necessarily today, but there, you know, there's bark and there's grass, you know, and there's, there are birds and there's the buzz of life and there are clouds and there are breezes and maybe sunshine somewhere <laughs> above the clouds. And <clears throat> it's so easy this time of year, being the dark time of year and being a gray day and being the information that we're inundated with over the last months and years around, you know, these injustices and global climate crisis. It's easy to be obsessed with the obvious part of the story that's heavy. And how to own that, how to be intimate with that, without closing ourselves off. And you don't even need to go outside because the wonderland, the amazingness of nature, you can't, we can't escape it. It's right here. It's dancing in our bodies. It's, you know, in the dynamic of our community in the room. It's in the vibe of this space that we're put together by a bunch of volunteers, contributions from so many people. I mean, it's wherever we look, we see it. You know, I see the grayness of the building. I could kind of get negative about, you know, it's got the, you know, all the stuff, the mechanics of the building on the on the roof, you know, using electricity and it's gray and steel blue. It's not even attractive. And then I remember, you know, it used to be a place where people got drunk. Some of you might remember the mirage that was there. And now it's this bakery and you know, and it makes nice bread and people eat that bread. And, you know, so there's, there's always, the, the truth is always multidimensional. And it's a little bit like knowing what question to ask. 
It's knowing what to pay attention to in every moment. Like what allows us to really touch the reality of driving fast over a cliff. And so much of the conversation, or another metaphor that's used, you know, driving fast and we're going to hit a brick wall. And the the conversation often these days seem among people who are in the know seems to revolve around it's just a question of how fast we'll be driving when we hit the brick wall. You know, are we going to be going 80 when we hit it? Or are we going to be going five miles an hour when we hit that wall in terms of the kind of destruction? And we can be obsessed about that fact and it actually, we misrepresent the truth because we're not seeing the whole picture. But it doesn't mean that we're not driving fast toward a brick wall. It just means that there's still plants coming up through the cracks in the road. right? And there's all of this activity that's happening. Some of you, you alluded to it in, your, in the opening go-round about, I'm not worried about nature. Well, we're nature. So this amazing edge where we want to really connect with the sorrow and the, the probable, inevitable maybe, destruction. But life has always, nature has always been this machine of destruction, you know, where there's infestations, like human infestations going on now, and then destruction. You know, and we have some sense of the last 10, 20, 30,000 years in terms of human civilization. But, you know, there have been cycles of life. I mean, it's just amazing. Now, you've probably seen those clocks, you know, where they, in terms of the life of the earth. And I forget, but it's like, in terms of the 12-hour clock, we're just in the seconds. Human civilization is just a few seconds and that, 12-hour clock, you know, but it seems so substantial. So I want to gravitate into um, three stories um, and just generally start to look at the kind of stories we tell. But um, from this point of view that all of our stories are part of nature, You know, the climate change is nature, it's natural. The numbness, anger, denial, the just wanting to consume, expecting technology to save us, that's all nature. Gathering here today is nature, right? There's nothing outside of nature. Now, that's such a provocative statement on purpose. You know, I'm, I'm kind of doing it on purpose, you know, but this is what I think Thich Nhat Hanh's poem was pointing to. Like the pirate, you know, he was talking about the boat people trying to get out of Vietnam and taking boats to um, Thailand, I think mostly. And uh, a lot of them being preyed upon by pirates that would steal whatever gold or whatever valuables they had and their water, their food maybe too, and rape young women. That it's all the dance of nature. Now, what does our heart do with that? This is from Ajahn Pasano, another one of our elders in this tradition, a Buddhist monk and a uh, Canadian, but he's an abbot of the monastery in California. 
When we're in conflict with something, we're pushing it away and making it other. It's only when we rely on love or have a very caring attitude that we bring the outside into ourselves. Only then do we understand it, do we see its truth. So how can we bring it in? And I listened uh, for this program today, I listened to Mark Coleman, who has written some books about bringing uh, Dharma practice in the wild. I don't know if anybody's read his books. And he's a long-time spirit rock teacher. But uh, he gave a nice talk. You can get it on dharmaseed.org on this climate change just uh, from this summer. But one statement he made that I think can be a real anthem for our work today, he says, like in terms of how we can respond to this crisis, he says, we, and I think you could say nature, we naturally protect what we love. Right? We naturally show up, we naturally respond, we naturally take the time to listen deeply when we're with something we love. So in terms of turning this around or inspiring people, um, how do we get people to fall in love with their life, with nature, with their existence, with their communities. This is why this culture of death, it's, again, it's a provocative statement that Bhikkhu Bodhi used, because consumerism and, and addictive consumption of media, you know, and I, you know, we're all, I think, in that boat to some, in our own particular way, where we somehow are trying to get fed by something that doesn't feed us. Whether it's, for some people, the consumption of news, other people, it's the consumption of things that we'd call entertainment, or we might even consider it wholesome, you know, books, Dharma books, even, sitting. But we're always left hungry. Because we're somehow still involved in that culture of death. So what I thought we'd do next for the start now and then end after lunch is look at some of the stories we tell in our mind. Um, And we can look in particular at three stories that Joanna Macy has brought out for us. But again, don't assume that the first story is bad and the last story is good, right? Like understanding that we're going to inhabit all three of these stories in many, many varieties of these same three stories. So, you know, just because we're using three, we're just trying to collect all of our stories that we're using in these three categories. Or if you can't, then create your own fourth, fifth category if you need to. So the three categories that she uses is some version of the story, business as usual. And that might include technology will save us, as well as, you know, the people who maybe are in more strong denial. It's just a cycle. It will change. Or it isn't worth trying to fix it in any case. Now, mostly we think of denial or that business as usual as being bad. But sometimes it's good. 
like, let's say you're one of, like so many of you seem to be, people who have been longtime activists. And now you're embittered <laughs> because things haven't changed as fast as they need to change. And so now we're, like I mentioned, we're in that place where it's not about some possible good outcome. It's about how bad the outcome will be. You know, modifying about how bad it will be. Um, But sometimes we have to put it down and we just have to be with the breath coming in and the breath going out. Or we have to go laugh with friends, play frisbee, or, you know, put in native species, even though we know. Like I bought recently a, a used plug-in car, electric car. I mean, it, it also has a hybrid engine, so it's not just electric. And uh, I kind of like it. But it's not like I think that somehow, I mean, the net effect of having a car is really not so good. <laughs> so... But these little, uh, these little places where the mind can be refreshed, not even completely harmless places that the mind can be refreshed, whatever they might be, willing to play. Because the unwillingness to laugh and the unwillingness to play and lie on grass or lie in the sun or throw snowballs or build ice shanties, you know, the unwillingness to play actually is being part of the problem. That's what we have to, that's how we heal that tendency to business as usual. Like how we can use denial or distraction, how we can transform it so it's not just destructive. So um, before lunch, we're going to break into small groups and you're going to just talk about personally, how these three stories or other stories operate in your mind and how you can heal the stories that are already embedded in your personality, right? So that they're not just driven by greed, anger, and delusion, but maybe can be part of holding the question, how can I be radically intimate with the conditions, the circumstances, see things as they are, see the roots of it, be intimate with compassion, care about it, and be light, be alive, responding boldly and freely, and actually come alive in the process instead of becoming dead in the process. And we need stories, right? It's the stories that point us in the right direction, help us to be sustained in the work. So, That's one story, business as usual. I'm not going to go into, um, maybe later I'll go a little bit more into the ways that can be toxic, right? Like we think we're equanimous, but we're really indifferent. And a lot of people have written good stuff about this. The second question, the, the second story that we need to tell in a wholesome way is and she calls it, Joanna Macy calls it, the great unraveling, right? Now, this one we're, should be pretty familiar to us because we like the drama of the great unraveling. It's amazing. You know, when we hear um, people talk or see the videos or read the facts, 
or let our minds spin with the information we have, you know, we talk about, we can talk about all the the bees that are dying or, you know, the shift in temperature or the, you know, the rising sea levels and what that does, the amazing floods that have happened. And uh, so how to use that, use the information and the urgency that it can bring up, how to use that energy in a good way. Because otherwise it's a, sorry about the, the grossness of this, but it's a kind of masturbation almost where we get off on the intensity. It's like, have you noticed like looking, you're kind of scanning through the headlines and especially these days and you're looking for the most provocative headline, you know? And it's like we want to poke the heart so we feel alive, you know, so we jab at it. We look at the skinny polar bear on, you know, looking for sheet ice to do its hunting or something really poignant like that, you know, whatever it might be for each of us. And of course, the media machine is looking for those pokes because then they get clicks, you know, people click on it and they get advertising dollars. So it's this whole mechanism that's a little sick. So how to use the great unraveling, the stories we have uh, as we interpret the facts, as we look at the facts, how do we Use that because basically it's like that's where there's energy. Because like I, I mentioned from Mark Coleman, we naturally protect, we naturally respond to things we care about, that which we love. So that's that mechanism that the great unraveling, it's like that mother grizzly bear, you know, she's going to protect her cub. She doesn't need to be taught how to protect her cub. We don't need to be taught how to protect the world. We just need to activate the natural mechanisms that are already there. Like so, how to use the information. So that's another thing you can look at in your small groups. Talk about how you've misused stories around the great unraveling and times when you've used it skillfully. Right? So we're sharing with each other how we've used business as usual, skillfully and unskillfully, how we've used stories around the great unraveling skillfully and unskillfully. Skillfully would be, you know, in, a, in the direction where there's a lot of that profound clarity where we're connecting the dots. We're seeing the underlying roots, seeing what can be done. There's a lot of intimacy, compassion. There's a lot of lightness because the partition, we're doing what we're meant to do. We're coming alive. People come alive when they're doing what they're meant to do, taking care of each other. It doesn't actually matter whether we're completely successful in the endeavor. It's enlivening, right? People who are parents, you know, they don't survive their kids, mostly, you know. They give their life away to creating good conditions, and then they help their kids take care of their kids, right? And then they die. So that's not that sort of coming alive in the process of living and then dying is just what it is to be alive. We're always going to leave everything behind. So it's never about us anyway. And then the last story or the last, uh, I guess, story is uh, the great turning. Right? So we emerge out of the fear 
and uh, tightness of the great unraveling to a kind of transformation that we've all been talking about. So it's not that I'm going to, you know, not the sort of savior complex that I'm going to fix this or you're going to fix this, but it's a real transformation. So, you know, we've talked already about this mutuality or non-duality, like uh, engaging in a non-dual way. So instead of we're going to fix this, I'm going to fix this, it's really activating things that are inherent in nature itself. Right? Nature has all these interdependent feedback loops. So the question is, how, how are they activated? Well, the bottom line is, nature works best when everybody's talking to, to everybody. You know, when everybody's being truthful, when there's clarity, then nature works best. best. So, as human beings responding, we're also nature. So the missing ingredient is this transparency or this truthfulness. And this is what the great turning is about. Like, what are the systems of sharing information? There's some teachings I've heard Reb Anderson talk about. He's a well-known Zen teacher, started at the San Francisco Zen Center, was the abbot there for a while, and now a senior teacher up at Green Gulch Farm, which is owned by the Zen Center, San Francisco Zen Center, north of San Francisco. Beautiful place. And they they practice a lot of this deep ecology there. But he has this um, thing about truth where he says nobody owns truth, right? It's like to uncover truth, we need everybody's perspective. We need everybody's participation. I mean, how many times have we as humans done really destructive things because we felt we had the truth? And now we're going to impose it, like it or not, on other people. And this is why the environmental movement gets some pushback. <clears throat> because one of the things that happens in some more conservative or um, groups of people that may not be as uh, open to some of what we would consider obvious facts is because of a kind of smugness, holier-than-thou, wiser-than-thou attitude that sometimes, you know, whether, I don't know, you want to call people liberal or progressive or environmentally conscious, but there's a sort of uh, me and you, you know, the wise, the sensitive, the awake, the ignorant, the wrong, the stupid. And uh, the thing that people will realize more than anything else is that this life matters. This life that I'm living matters. And if somebody has is projecting some attitude that your life doesn't matter because you're dumb or you don't get it, they know that that's not true. And it isn't true. And so they write off everything. You know, they write you off or me off and they write off what we're saying. And so nothing happens. We get these conflicts or these sort of war of ideas. And because they see something, you know, just uh, in me, that is truly off, they feel justified in writing off everything. And then we do the same thing. 
assuming that they don't, they're not part of the conversation. They don't get to be part of it because they don't get it. So we put ourselves in opposition. So I think the great turning, that story is some resolution of that dualistic problem. Like that's, that's the, the healing. And see, that's the healing I was talking about, that even if the problem isn't solved in the sense that we're still going to hit that wall, but there's some beautiful healing that's happening as we together realize we're going to hit a wall and we work together naturally responding. You know, if we all knew we were hitting a wall, we'd be responding. But we have ways of not staying intimate with that, not realizing that. So I thought what we do with the half an hour before lunch is break off into small groups and uh, we have about, I think, 21 or so, 20 or 21. And uh, so maybe um, four or five in a group. And I'll, I'll, we'll count off so that it can be somewhat random. And then just in that small group, just settle in. Share everybody, share your name. Make sure people can see your name tag. And then maybe decide on an order. And everybody will get about three minutes. So that's, you know, around 15 minutes. And then about 15 minutes of open conversation. So when it's your three minutes, everybody else, you're just sitting grounded in the experience of your body, intimate with your experience of your body. You don't have to try to listen or nod or gesture in any way while that person is speaking for about three minutes. You're just receiving what they have to say. And, you, and when it's your turn to talk, you're just talking about the kind of stories your mind inhabits. And they might relate to these three that I mentioned Business as usual, the great unraveling, not the great unraveling, what is it? Oh yeah, the great unraveling and the great turning, right? So, or just talk about the stories your mind inhabits in light of the presence of greed, anger, delusion or the absence of greed, anger, delusion, right? It being ways those stories have been skillful and enlivening for you, ways that they've been a dead weight and not helpful for you or others. Okay? So you're just clear in your talking with the group, you're just clarifying the kind of stories you have around this issue of climate change and their wholesomeness or their unwholesomeness and maybe how they relate to these stories that Joanna Macy talks about. Business as usual, the great unraveling, the great turning. And then that last 15 minutes is that's when you can ask clarifying questions. What did you mean by that? hey, what you said there relates to what I've been thinking here. You know, so you can just have an open discussion for the last 15 minutes. Then we'll come together for just a few minutes before we break for lunch at 12.30. Any questions about that? Good. So why don't we count off by five? So we'll have five groups. Great. So here's some uh, thoughts for the lunchtime. Just so, I mean, it should be casual and fun. Um, and some of you might want to rest in here too. But in terms of conversation, if you could just organize yourselves in the community room. And if you didn't bring it back lunch, then go get something and maybe bring it back instead of eating it out there. And again, just notice, like in terms of the community we're creating today, how e- much easier it is for some of you to not engage the community. And I get it. I'm the same way. But nothing, you know, like part of what we have to realize is 
being by herself doesn't change anything, <laughs> you know. It basically gives us time to reinforce the stories that aren't so helpful mostly when we're by ourselves. Not always, but mostly. Um, some of you know Paul Hawkins, a well-known environmentalist and business person. And uh, he has this great line. He was interviewed with Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers in Inquiring Mind a while back. And he says uh, that the, the question isn't so much what's going to happen as it is who are we going to be when it happens right? or how we're going to relate. That's the question. And I've been talking about it as this, you know, this way of relating or you could think of it as the glue that holds our stories together. So it's not so much whether the story's about business as usual or the great turning or the great unraveling because we're going to need to tell each of those three stories at different times in our lives. But what's the motivation behind or what's the glue out of what is, are those stories being told? Is it compassion, wisdom, and freedom? It's nice to you know think about compassion as that ability to be close which generally amplifies the intensity, the heat, right? Because we're getting close. And wisdom is what keeps things cool, right? Oh, because wisdom is the part of the mind that's understanding. It's just a lawful unfolding, right? But they need each other. They work together. You need the heat of compassion or the intensity of compassion, the intensity of being close, and it's the coolness of wisdom that it's just a natural process, a lawful process that can be seen. We can see the roots of where we are right now. And we can see what's getting set in motion. We can be clinical about that. But if it's just the clinical, then it's a real disconnect. If it's just the compassion or the intensity of connection, then we can get really thrown off by that too. So we need it together. Let me read this about compassion. And then what I was going to suggest for the lunchtime conversations is because compassion is an easier way in than the wisdom piece often. It's an easier expression of the wisdom. Just keep checking as you talk about, like some of you might be sharing a little bit about how you've been involved or what's important to you. But just keep checking in all your conversations, even if you're just talking about the weather or the Vikings or whatever it might be, Black Lives Matter, just check. Are, are the words that I'm speaking, are the words that I'm he- hearing, are they coming out of compassion, like a willingness to be intimate? Or are they coming out of this coolness of wisdom that understands everything is a lawful unfolding of innumerable causes and conditions? interdependent causes and conditions. Like, can we hold that, um, keep coming back to the activity of wisdom and compassion and the freedom of wisdom and compassion in all the mundaneness of our interactions and the profundity of our interactions at lunch? Even if you're here lying down and dreaming, resting, taking a nap, even your dreams should arise out of compassion and wisdom, right? Have the the richness of that of compassion, you know, the intensity of being connected, of seeing, feeling deeply, and the coolness of wisdom, seeing the naturalness of it. 
So this comes from David Edwards. Um, the plasticity of problems is the article. He's talking about compassion and, and this teaching from uh, Daniel Goleman's book, Destructive Emotions, where Daniel Goleman says, the very act of concern for others' well-being, it seems, creates a greater sense of well-being within ourselves, within oneself. And so here is his comment. He says, another remarkable consequence flows from this understanding. If compassion has the power to radically increase our happiness, then we can actually come to view suffering as a powerful resource. In a sense, as a good thing. As discussed above, nothing enhances our compassion like direct experience of suffering endured by others. We can use suffering to increase our compassion and so reduce all of our problems. Ultimately, problems are dependent on self-concern. <coughs> this is the point the Dalai Lama makes all the time. That um, it isn't until we give up our self-concern that we find freedom. right? The freedom of compassion. So he goes on, ultimately problems are dependent on self-concern. If we are completely self-obsessed, if we have little or no concern for others then even the smallest problem can seem enormous, overwhelming, unbearable. This is the fate that befalls the unreservedly cruel and selfish. But at times when our concern has authentically switched from our, own prob- from our problems to the problems faced by others, then the basis of, of our problems has been, in essence, turned off. Right? So when, we're, when our heart our mind is really has a bigger picture, then self-concern isn't in the picture, literally. I mean, by definition. And he ends here, this section, by saying, if our minds are passionately occupied with the suffering of others, in a very real sense, we have no problems at that time. If the master of the if, And if the masters of mind development are to be believed, this can come to be true even when facing extreme physical pain. It's an ex- extraordinary claim, but I believe Kempo Kartar Rinpoche's observation is exactly right. And he quotes this Tibetan teacher, which is, comes right out of Shantideva's teachings, this Indian monk of the ninth century. Come to an understanding that no matter how it may seem, the root of all suffering is, actual, is in actuality the desire to accomplish our own benefit and our own aims. And the root of all happiness is the relinquishment of that concern and the desire to accomplish the benefit of others. It's the desire to accomplish the benefit of others. Not whether you're successful, it's the giving yourself to it that is so enlivening. And there's nothing that can stop us. You know, it doesn't matter if we're going to hit that wall at 80 miles an hour, 20 miles an hour, or one mile an hour, or we somehow magically avoid hitting that wall and don't have some huge environmental crisis. Because we can use this time to express the freedom that's possible in giving our life away, away from our self-concerns. And this is what we're teasing out. So anyway, I thought this would be a good, like, what does it look like just to be in conversation with other people free, at least in moments of our self-concern, including 
having to convince each other that we're, you know, like we're part of the tribe that cares about this. Like that is stressful. Having to convince you that, you know, I'm part of the right side or whatever we might kind of neurotically come up when we're interacting with people we don't know well and somehow have to establish who we are with each other. And holding back isn't the way either. You know, for fear of saying something we shouldn't say or, you know, doing what Mark said we shouldn't do or something like that. So there's no escape. <laughs> so I'm going to eat alone in my office because <laughs> this is way too hard for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so wishing everyone a good lunch. And then, like I said, just break yourself into pods of groups of people so you can have conversations. But feel free to come in and take a nap. And we'll come back at 1.30. So it's a little less than an hour. Do you think 15 minutes is enough? So here's what I was thinking for the afternoon. We have about two hours. It's 2 o'clock. We end at 4. want to do a little bit outside. So some break at some point in small groups. Um, so we're we'll aiming for that break around uh, three, so in an hour's time, and uh, and <clears throat> to kind of dig in a little bit more to these three stories, and with the idea of starting to create something within all of our own minds, um, feeling empowered about how to transform stories, because you know we're making these stories as we go through life on the fly. And we're just going to operate out of habit unless we gain some, you know, basically space of wisdom that reflects back what we're doing and the possibility where I could tell the story a different way. You know, it could have the element of compassion embedded in it. Why the next time that we're talking to a friend about certain political leaders, um, hijacking, attempts at reform, why can't that story, that conversation, come out of compassion? Why couldn't it be just as effective or just as whatever, positive, having the, the healing flavor of compassion? So um, we'll take each of the three stories, dig in a little bit, and... The, what, we're th- what I'm thinking of doing here, and you know, just with whatever time we have, some of you have seen the wheel of life that comes out of the Buddhist traditions. The Tibetan version is a little bit more popular or more commonly seen. But often, the wheel of life is held by the great beast of impermanence, right? Things come and go. Things are changing. And this beast of impermanence, our own mortality, our own direct experience of not being in control, not being able to control, make good things happen or anything happen, basically, where we constantly have to play with everybody else, which means our power is limited because it's interdependent. So on the outside, with whatever time we have, we'll put some of our fears, and that will come as we talk a little bit more about the great unraveling, you know, You might have certain images or words that represent our fears. And they're kind of surrounding our heart, our family and friends, our communities, our world, right? 
Our world is engulfed. It's always going to be, this world is always going to be engulfed by change. And nothing we can do about that. And so then the question is, with what stories are we going to show up to our life, engage this world, engage our families and communities, and engage even our own hearts? And uh, we have these three stories that we talked about, business as usual, the great unraveling, the great turning. Another kind of archetypal way of thinking about it is engaging life as a healer, teacher, creator. Let's get the last one here. Oh, here it is. Yeah, healer, teacher, creator, and warrior. And these relate somewhat, a different person created these four and they relate somewhat to um, Joanna's. But like the warrior, like sometimes we're going to manifest in the world, in our communities, in our own life, in our own heart, as the warrior where we're going to fearlessly put down the forces of delusion, right? Sometimes we need to march. We need to speak truth to power. We need to do civil disobedience or whatever it takes, right? Whatever the moment requires, we have to do that. We have to be the warrior, just, if nothing else, just to buy some time. So you might think, now it's going to be different for each of us in our circumstances, where you might manifest as a warrior, locally, globally, what that might look like for you. Or where you might be a teacher, you know, somebody who's really um, teaching new ways of being, new ways of relating, new structures, new ways of solving problems, right? Or a healer, somebody who's healing the wounds. Like there's a lot of the results of this way that we've been living, like racism and all the other inequities that exist. There's a lot of healing that needs to happen. And that happens within our hearts, within our families and communities, and the larger world. So as we talk about stories, think about these archetypes of a healer, a teacher, a creator, somebody who actually builds something, does something, and a warrior, somebody who puts a stop to something. And what you're drawn to, what your life seems to be asking from you. Is it asking it on a global level, local, community, family level, intra, you know, within your own mind, your own heart level? So again, we're, our lives, our world, is surrounded by the great beast of impermanence, change, lawfulness, karma, right? like this is so telling in terms of global climate change it's like so much of it has already been set in motion right that's karma it's like we are going to receive the actions of the past and especially our children or those of you with kids or you know this the living beings yet to come are going to receive because karma cause and effect has its way there's no stopping it. When something's set in motion, it has to be expressed. 
Now, in, in, Buddhist, in Buddhism, they have this great simile, like, you, the, like I said earlier, karma will express itself. And this is like a law in physics, too. You, you can set something in motion without setting it in motion. It, that motion, that force, will have its effect in the world. But I mentioned, you know, it's all stories. So depending on our story, the effect of karma will be very different. If our mind is as wide and open as the sky, if our wisdom is that vast and some negative karma shows up, it will be experienced in one way. If I'm in a really narrow, self-centered, fear-based place and some difficult circumstances show up in my life, it's going to be a lot more overwhelming for me, right? It matters. The mind that hears the news, the mind that receives the experience, the quality of that mind determines how heavy the experience is going to be. So let's, uh, let's think a little bit more deeply about business as usual, as a story we tell. And um, just talking about the different ways of distractedness and superficiality and denial, post- postponement, you know. When I retire, then I'll get serious about recycling, <laughs> Or whatever, you know, about the environment. It's like uh, there are a few uh, pivotal moments. Remember the, when was it one of the Apollo missions or when one of the earlier orbiting astronauts took that photograph of the planet and that our perspective shifted like, oh my God, it's just this blue-green thing here. Beautiful. And that just a sense, you know, because we could hold it as a concept, then we could appreciate the fragility. You see the swirling clouds and the oceans and the, you know, the texture, the topography of the planet. But it's so easy to have a different view, you know, kind of an indifference or a, yeah, just not aware of the planet. And we really have to stretch. You know, there's, <clears throat> there are all these teachings from different traditions about these um, morphic fields, sometimes they're called. And they exist on different levels. Like you can think of even a cell, one cell in your body as having its own particular morphic field, its own uh, cohesiveness, coherence, integrity, right? It's like a living being. Every cell, right? It's like a living being. And then that cell might think of the organ it's in as like, that's, that's my universe. I'm in this muscle group or this liver or this kidney. And then that organ, that muscle group or whatever, that has its own coherence, its own integrity. Like it's a living being too. The liver as a living being. And then the body, right? We have a sort of governing council of the body, which we call the ego, right? Me is my body, my home. And then we have my family, 
You know, then we have humanity or my tribe maybe first. You know, people who look like me, act like me, enculturated like me. And then bigger, like humankind. And then there's a sort of, you know, uh, all beings on this planet, Gaia. So the earth consciousness and then solar consciousness and galactic consciousness and who knows. And it's really good to open our mind to this because we get really sticky about this one particular uh, size of organization around this physical body. And we lose all the other, you know, like even like we do connect with other mammals, right? Why? Why? Why is it so much easier to connect with a cat or a deer than um, a reptile? Right? Because we're part of that tribe. We have we have a share a morphic field on many levels. And we also do with the reptiles, but it's at a more subtle level, you know, and with the planet. But we can unlock these different things. And this is kind of takes us out of business as usual because business as usual is within this particular frame of me, this body, my comfort needs of a warm bed and the foods I like and the way I like to be treated. And we we don't want to neglect that. It's not like that's not true. It's just one part of the truth, that sort of narrow perspective is one part of the truth. And so how do we respect that? You know, when we see a business person kind of doing what business people do, be greedy and say, well, you know, I'm not going to take responsibility for carbon, the carbon that my business produces, because nobody else is, you know. It's not good business. Now, if we all do it together, okay. But I'm not going to take the lead in this because it's not good business. Or like, you know, some of the oil companies initially were very happy that the polar ice cap was melting, Arctic ice cap was melting, because it just made exploration a lot easier. I guess actually it's more stormy up there, even though the ice is clearing. So there are problems. (laughs) But initially, there was a sort of like glee. Yeah, well, this this might work out pretty well for us. But it's it's like getting stuck in just that one morphic field of being a business person. You know, just seeing things in one way. So this can really help, like knowing that we have these sticky places where we tend to frame our experience. But no one frame is the whole truth. You know, it's actually about the ability to move between frames that's more like the truth. Meaning, every frame is a relative truth. So in the same way, like, if we come at this problem with a a Gaia frame, the whole earth frame, but that, just because there's some truth there, doesn't doesn't neglect the one guy, you know, who's just trying to survive. And him surviving requires using, you know, as he imagines it, as he sees his existence, requires using chemicals in his farm, somebody brought up, you know, or using Roundup. You know, their sense of security, that person's sense of security means having no weeds 
in their lawn or, you know, whatever we might from that other bigger perspective, so-called bigger perspective, would think is ridiculous. But it's still their frame. You know, in the same way that, you know, your arm might fester and you might need to have it amputated. And, you know, from the point of view of those cells, it's like, that's not okay for me. But from the point of view of the bigger system, got to sacrifice the arm because otherwise the whole system is going down. So business as usual is like really appreciating when we're in a frame, which is always like appreciating that we're in a frame and how to respect it. Like, oh yeah, I'm just a needy guy who wants his wife to treat him this way tonight. You know, I just need some comfort or I just need you to play along, you know, and uh, whatever it might be. Now, we can't demand anything, but we can appreciate the integrity or the coherence of that particular worldview, that particular frame, and not uh, negate it or judge it. And we have to be able to play within all these different frames. So, like, to hate that frame doesn't make it go away. Like, when when that little needy boy in me that frame has been activated, if I relate to it from sort of a a different frame and then judge it or hate it or humiliated by it, it doesn't mean I'm not, that little frightened boy doesn't exist. It just means it has to be repressed, which is unhealthy. And this is the frustrating thing about like responding to global climate change is there's a, you know, at any moment, most of us are business as usual in our different frames. We're not fluid between frames. We're not, you know, have that ability to move between frames. So how are we going to include everybody? Get everybody, you know, work together as a community? Because we all have to change. It's not like if, if we're going to slow down the vehicle hurtling towards the wall... It doesn't help if even two-thirds or one-third of the world gets behind it, you know? Um, I mentioned that interview with Joseph Goldstein and uh, Paul Hawken, and he also mentioned in that interview about in 1973 when the the Limits to Growth book came out from the Club of Rome. What a shock that was, just this idea that there are limits to the growth model. You know, if you just keep growing. Isn't it interesting now that the Fed has been in the news lately about, I don't know if you know this, I studied economics in college, so I know a little bit, although I've mostly forgotten it. But, you know, the, the, the premise is basically that they build in inflation. They, we need inflation. You need growth and inflation kind of keep the economy humming along. There has to be this sense of expansion. And we see it in our own lives. You know, it's like, how do we know we're better off now than we were when we're 30? Well, we have more stuff, right? It's like, I got all this stuff. 
So the different things that can uh, break us out of our frames. Uh, another story in regards to getting out of these frames, you know, status quo frames. So this is interesting because it involves a spiritual community. So Thich Nhat Hanh, I mentioned, he's uh, quite an activist. And so of all the nuns and monks who train with him, he's got a quite a big monastic sangha as well as, of course, a huge lay community that follow his teachings. And uh, he was, I believe, at his San Diego um, monastery, uh, Deer Park, it's called, outside of San Diego. And uh, we have one of our old community members who is a monk there now. And um, after 9-11, you know, they were quite, of course, moved being activists and being really sensitive awake people, they were quite shocked and moved and felt deeply what happened at 9-11. And um, <clears throat> their frame, being activists, was, we got to do something. And they did do quite a bit. His letter to President Bush after that um, was kind of an open letter. It was, it was beautiful if you get a chance to take a look at it. It has like strike terror in the title. I have it somewhere if you're interested in it. Um, but anyway, instead of immediately like drafting that letter or doing this or doing that, the next day he rented a bunch of vans or buses and took everybody at the monastery to the beach. And they played tag on the beach. This is the day after 9-11. Because it was like that frame, you know, that frame gets activated, we got to do something. And it's not like it's a bad frame, but it's a reflexive, unconscious, fear-based response, right? And he, being such a wise person, understood the most important thing isn't what frame you're in, but to understand the relativeness of all frames, right? So when you speak out of a particular frame, you're not assuming your frame is right. Instead, you're understanding, in this moment, this feels like a good frame to speak from, to act from. And you can think about that here, too, when you place how you're going to respond. It's like, it can be all over the place. You know, a healer in one place, a teacher in another place. Maybe another archetype is to sort of receive, like to receive somebody else's you know, leadership or, you you know what I mean? It's like we don't always have to be the assertive force in it. And so I thought it was so brilliant to sort of break that activist, serious, got to do, got to fix, it's my responsibility. If we don't do it, who will? And how shocking it is to say for a day we're not going to deal with this. Right? I mean, most I was out of the country and away from TV, so I, I missed a lot of the powerful conditioning people got right after 9-11 because of the media and because of the conversations. But you can imagine, if you can remember yourself at that day after, deciding to sort of disconnect from media and go play with your friends. Like, just like a completely different frame, like, it's okay to touch peace. It's okay to touch joy. It's okay to play. So keep that in mind. It's like, I think, 
one of the few reasons there's still, you know, a lot of mental health, I think, in our culture. Not, I mean, not, it's not only mental health, there's mental illness pervasive as well, but it's because we have pets that cause us to play, you know? We hold the cat in the lap and we pet it. And it's like, it's a different reality. We're in a different frame when we're walking the dog or tickling the belly of my cat or, you know, whatever we do. Or have kids around, too. Any thoughts about this before we move on to the next one? What we're thinking of doing here is on the outer, we're representing outside of the circle, we're representing um, the monster, you know, suffering and all of its forms. And then on the inside, the three circles on the inside, we're representing our response. And our response has to do with a story, right? A story that has power because it, you know, stories have power when they represent the way things are. And the way things are, aren't, um, they're holistic, right? So stories that, instead of starring a, the central character, me, you know, something about all of us, all of it, coming, responding in that way. So if we're a teacher coming from the whole, if we're a healer coming from the whole, if we're a warrior coming, otherwise it's a self-trip. And it's a self-trip that creates all the monsters to begin with. I mean, this is an interesting person in this area. I don't know if you've come across. I think it's a he. Guyapati. And he wrote this for One Earth Sangha, which is a wonderful website. But there's an eco-dharma center, and I forget where it is. I think it's in Spain. And so I think he's Spanish, dharma practitioner. And this is his article that you can find on the One Earth Sangha website called Equanimity and Denial. And he's really, this is like the shadow of the business as usual. You know, and this could be part of the monster. But uh, the traditional text also slaps some important public health warnings on equanimity. Loud and clear, they caution, do not mistake equanimity for indifference. Indifference, they say, is the near enemy of equanimity, right? This is, these are classic Buddhist teachings. Indifference might suggest some close similarities to equanimity, but as all good forgers know, it's all too easy to pick up something with a passing resemblance to a tasty and nourishing species, but that is in fact a poison. The mistaken identity is a common error, but an indifferent, detached withdrawal and lack of connection with the world is not the equanimity the Dharma points us toward. It's a toxic pretender, a near enemy, but even so, it offers an alluring surrogate. The challenges of our time with its economic and ecological irrationalities, social tensions and uh, preclarities, all too easily tip the balance in us towards tendencies to withdraw. It's right, and this is true in this room, with people who are, you know, relatively speaking, very clear, very connected, 
And is there anybody in this room who hasn't seen that tendency to close down, to withdraw, to give up, to be despondent? I have. Um, It's no wonder that disconnection entices us, and all the more so when, mistaking indifference for equanimity, we can use Buddhism to provide the rationalization that rather than copying out, we're actually gaining spiritual maturity. Right? Like, well, yeah, just another boom and bust. And there will be more of the same. Right? And as if, just because it is part of this endless cycle of boom and bust, means we shouldn't respond. We shouldn't engage. That it isn't our teacher for how to be, how to become alive and loving and wise. Turning toward the near enemy of equanimity is widespread. It's not only Buddhists who are seduced by the coping mechanisms of withdrawal. Donald Rothberg, he's a spirit rock teacher, lists the range of contemporary forms of indifference, the state of art of equanimity's near enemies. Denial, complacency, resignation, acquiescence, numbness. That's a big one, numbness. Intellectual aloofness, rationalization, cynicism, dogmatism, fear of strong emotions, particularly angry, anger. Now that's another big one, fear of strong emotions, especially in the Buddhist communities. Because if we've been, as most of us have in different ways, if we have been caught by this near enemy of indifference, and then we start to catch it, and don't, like, no, no, I'm not going to fall into that trap, the alternative might be kind of an explosion, an explosive energy, because we've been repressing the natural desire to respond. So then when we finally let it out, we speak with too strong of a voice. And it's imperfect. It's just more perfect, more healthy than repressing it. So it's still the right direction, but it might be messy. And you see this a lot with racial injustice and other kinds of social change that groups have been oppressed. And then when they start to find their voice, you know, it can seem from a privileged point of view, why are they so angry? You know? Well, because all kinds of systematic uh, forces have kept them quiet. And then when finally that energy can start to move, ventilate, it's going to be a little explosive. It's going to be a little wild. It's not going to be perfect. But it was, it's a lot more perfect than pretending like we solved that problem in the civil rights in the 60s. You know, okay, done that, now what? It's just kind of what a lot of us think, you know, unless something comes a little bit more front and center for us. You might take a look at this article when you get a chance online. It's, I thought it was really good. I used one of his quotes in our newsletter last this last fall in the where we always have a quote. Uh, I think it's oneearthsanga.org. Now, are they the ones that sponsored your training? Yeah, that Ecosatva training that uh, Kaya was talking about. We're getting there. No, I just described it so you could be thinking. Because at some point, we're going to get pens and we're going to kind of sit around 
and we're going to draw in how we might respond, right? And it might be some version of these stories, like what that's going to look like coming through me, right? And so we have, there's, you know, there are different frames. We have the frame of these three stories, things, uh, business as usual, the great unraveling, the great turning. We have the four archetypal um, people, you know, the teacher, the healer, the creator, the warrior. Um, Mark Coleman has a, another list of four. They're all interrelated because they, I think both have been influenced quite a bit by Joanna Macy's. Um, Mark Coleman has something like, we need to reactivate our love for the earth. We need to um, grieve what has been lost. Right? We have to recognize what's been lost already. We have to reimagine our ways of responding. Or, or we have to reimagine, not ways of responding, but reimagine new ways of being. And then the last is we have to re-inspire action. Right? So, but all of those are important. So like, for example, somebody might put the work just in the middle, right? Because what they see is the first thing I need to do, the only thing I have any clarity of is I have to find my way back to love. I have to learn to see what's beautiful because right now I'm just angry and closed down. So I just need to be that person who can recognize what's beautiful. Or I, I need to make peace. I have to grieve the loss because I, it's in my not being able to handle the loss, what's already been lost, what's already been set in motion, that keeps me from responding healthily and actively. So let's think about a little bit more deeply about the great unraveling. Again, both as a skillful story, but a story with a shadow. So... You know, the great unraveling as a positive story is um, like to be unafraid of the truth, to face the truth. You know, to like I, we've been using this image of a car hurtling toward a brick wall. So things have been set in motion. And uh, how to do this without, like I mentioned this morning, where we're basically tripping on the intensity or getting high on the intensity of the stories. How can we be sobered by the story and moved to urgency by the story? But not like constantly going back to the story because there's a lot of juice there or constantly avoiding the story because there's a lot of confusion there. How can we use the story of the great unraveling in a positive way? So we can think about that together and I'll just share uh, a few things that I've come across that might be useful. I mentioned uh, before about Bhikkhu Bodhi. You know, he has uh, this great little chapter in right speech in one of his books. And in it, he just talks about the importance of truth, this commitment to truth, which I think is the positive side of that story, The Great Unraveling. It's like, I want to know the truth. I just want to know, right? He says, it's been said that in the course of his long training for enlightenment over many lives, 
the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, can break all the moral precepts except the pledge to speak the truth. And the reason for this is very profound and reveals that the commitment to truth has a significance transcending the domain of ethics and even mental purification, taking us to the, the domain of knowledge and being. So he's talking about the Buddha before he became a Buddha. And so if you don't know the story or the myth, the legend, whatever, is that he lived, you know, in almost infinite number of lifetimes over an inconceivable amount of time, developing all the qualities needed to be, to wake up and to be able to teach, right? So that makes a Buddha different than a normal awakened person. They are awake, they've gone beyond greed and aversion, and they can articulate that path in a way that other people can get it. So, and then it said that although the Buddha made a lot of mistakes, including, I think, in some of those lifetimes, killed people, I mean, you know, pretty drastic things, but he never lied, never sort of lost his commitment to the truth. And the reason is that Bhikkhu Bodhi is getting to in this paragraph is that the whole path that the Buddha laid out, this is what we call the path of awakening, is all about following this thread of truth, but not some abstract philosophical truth. It's not conceptual at all. It's this kind of, sometimes it's translated as a straightness of view. It's like that bare open quality of the mind, seeing, feeling deeply the way it is. Unencumbered by what we expect it to be, what we want it to be, what we were told it was going to be, but just taking things as they are. And so this is part of that story of the great unraveling. And you could see it in any of those archetypes as a teacher, as a warrior. I mean, you need this commitment or this grounding in things as they are. Not needing things as they are to be more than they are or less. And when things are confusing and ambiguous, not having a problem with that. Because that's how it is. Because when it's confusing, it's not that that's wrong. Because right? that sometimes it's like that. It's confusing. It's ambiguous. We don't know. And so we can be grounded in that. I'll just read the end of this. He goes, That's thus much more than an ethical principle. Devotion to truthful speech is a matter of taking our stand on reality rather than illusion, on the truth grasped by wisdom rather than the fantasies woven by desire. And the other thing in this great unraveling is this uh, great sensitivity to karma, cause and effect or lawfulness. Like everything's lawful. We may not be able to read the intricacies, the interdependent intricacies of karma, of cause and effect, but we can, like our life and our paying attention has taught us it's always lawful. It's always a natural unfolding and then the question is, well, what can be added to this natural unfolding? Like, so the, the natural, it's not just a deterministic thing, right? Because even though there's a lot in motion, how we relate to it and how we respond to it right now 
is added to what's already in motion, right? So in every moment, a mind relates to the way it is, that mind is adding karma. That intentional action of relating and responding is adding to what's already in motion. So it's like Sylvia Burstein says, we can always write another chapter. All the chapters haven't been written. A lot's been written. A lot is in motion. But how it all plays out is still up in the air, right? Because we're still relating to it. We're still responding to it. It's not over. Enough for a year-long workshop. Oh, there's so many great stories. <laughs> I'll just share this one. This I just read a wonderful book, powerful book, and disturbing book. Maybe some of you have seen it around. It's uh, I always mispronounce his name. I'm not sure I have it right, but Ta Nehisi Coates. For, he writes for the Atlantic Monthly mostly. He just, I think he won, what did he win with this? Something. Uh, but the book is Between the, the World and Me. He's a, a, a African-American man, uh, who, again, who writes for the Atlantic Monthly. And uh, yeah, it's just, he's, he, the premise of the book is he's writing a letter to his 13 or so year old son about, what it is to be a black man in America. And uh, and there's just a lot of anger. Uh, but it's it's really ringingly clear. So it's, uh, it's a window into this world. And he calls uh, people like myself, you know, white and privileged dreamers is the word he uses. I mean, there's a lot of context to the quote I'm going to read, but I think you'll get it just from the quote. Um, and he's speaking about the dreamers. They have forgotten the scale of theft that enriched them in slavery, the terror that allowed them for a century to pilfer the vote, the segregationist policy that gave them their suburbs. They have forgotten because to remember would tumble them out of the, out of the beautiful dream and force them to live down here with us, down here in the world. I'm convinced that the dreamers, at least the dreamers of today, would rather live white than live free. In the dream, they are Buck Rogers and Prince Aragon, an entire race of Skywalkers. To awaken them is to reveal that they are an empire of humans, and like all empires of humans, are built on the destruction of the body. It is to stain their nobility to make them vulnerable, fail, uh, failable, breakable humans. Right. So part of this un- great unraveling is in some way owning our fragility and not pathologizing it, not thinking it's like wrong to be fragile. It's just the way we are, right? We're fragile human beings. And and it's just a question of to what depth are we willing to inhabit that truth? 
And this is the interesting thing about, you know, when we think about love and wisdom, love and wisdom is that clear recognition, clear ownership of greed, anger, and delusion. It's not like transcending greed, anger, and delusion. It's understanding it. And this is really different, like Buddhism from some other theistic religions that have a strong sense of transcendence, like get me the hell out of here to some perfect place. Like in Buddhism, Buddhism, you know, in the cosmology, there's heaven. It's just not the end. It's not where you're trying to go because you always fall out of heaven. Like the angels did, right? The devils, they fall out of heaven, right? So the answer is to inhabit this without being afraid and without being confused by it. So that's the real value of the unraveling story is like how to engage, how to land in the middle, how to see clearly, how to be unafraid, how to um, align with the truth, the facts, how to listen deeply. And the shadow is we can't take it. So we either get addicted to the intensity and use it like a drug or we get angry. You know, generally when we open to pain and suffering, we want to hurt other people. This is so good for us to see in ourselves because it will help us understand a lot of what goes on in the world. When you see just in little ways that when you're having a hard day, you're more irritated towards your partner or friend, even though your difficulty in your day has nothing to do with them, but in some way you want them to pay for your difficult day. And that gives us a sense of like how hatred breeds hatred. Suffering breeds suffering. It's so humiliating as we open to it. This is, and this is the unraveling point. Like, what do we do? I mean, from my point of view as a white person, what do we do with that humiliation? Because we have to inhabit that space. Right? And it's the same thing with like inhabiting the space of our consumerism. Because like I said, I gave you the example of buying, you know, uh, replacing my, I gave my other car away and, and replaced it with the plug-in. But you know, it's like all the mining, all that goes and in, gets involved in the production of a new car, what that means. Because of my need for convenience, you know, and I have, I have my reasons, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, I'm going to read some of his stuff later. Yeah, it's, his books are great on this, and he he's looking at a bigger kind of one of the biggest stories, which is the sense of lack. Right? We have this deep sense of lack, and when the story takes us out into the world to feel fill that sense of lack, we're in trouble. We said emotion suffering, but the heart, the wisdom that can open to that deep existential feeling of lack, that's that fierce compassion. And we see it around us. That's what we need to see. You know, when we look at the Koch brothers, we need to see this is just one of an infinite expressions of that sense of lack. It doesn't matter that they're billionaires or whatever. They're just under the influence of lack. In the same way I am, when I've had a stressful day, 
and I go cook something and eat a lot more than I need to eat as a way of managing my stress. You know, for them it might be accumulating, buying corporations or saying, screw screw these regulations, I know a way around them, I can buy my way around them. It's really the same, it's just that they have a lot more power. For me, I'm just harming my body and wasting some food. And for other, you know, there might set in motion, you know, consequences that cause a lot more suffering. So let's take our break now. So we'll come back and we'll look at the great turning. And this work here will be part of that great turning, right? Because we're reimagining our activity in the world. That's really what the last hour or 15 minutes will be about. We're going to reimagine our activity in the world in terms of mostly healthy stories as a teacher, a healer, a warrior, a creator, using the different stories we've been talking about today that you shared in your small groups. And we'll draw. And if you're inspired, you can draw some of the monsters around, like the things that are really scary with words or with pictures around the circle. And then, and you can draw more than one spot. But right now we're going to do some refreshment. So you can use the toilet, but then let's go outside and let's do it in groups of three, okay? And so you're going to be outside. You can take a walk. What I'd recommend is you walk someplace in silence. Just hang out together in silence and just give yourself to your senses, seeing feeling the physicality of walking, smelling, hearing, take it all in, the activity. And when you see human activity, see it like you'd see the activity of birds or squirrels, right? Sometimes squirrels are mean to each other. Sometimes they're playful. Same with birds. You ever watch birds at a bird feeder? It's not all nice, right? So, so Matthews Park is one block this way. The Greenway is one block this way. If you're going to go to the Greenway, walk east. It's a little nicer than if you walk west. But maybe you want the more industrial side of things. Um, and so, you know, walk for 15, walk for 10 minutes. And then maybe just hang out. Like if there's a bench around or whatever. Just hang out uh, for a few minutes in silence. And then on your, then you could talk a little and then walk back. And you're just sharing about the natural refreshment that arises when we drop stories, right? So part of having useful, powerful stories is the capacity to drop them. If we can't drop them, we're destined to just keep using the same dead story, the same story that is not necessarily that skillful. So you have to, even relatively good stories, we have to completely put down, which means we have to give ourselves to the present moment of seeing hearing, touching, smelling, tasting, just the elements of the body, right? So do that, walking for 10 minutes, standing for a few minutes, and then nod to each other and walk back and have a conversation about refreshment, about putting down the story, about what gets in the way of putting down the story. Does that make sense? Yeah, Kaya's got to take off. And I think we have some Akaya's talks on our website from her previous programs. And in March, you're going to give a talk? Do you have the date? Anyway, it will be in the new newsletter. She's going to give a talk on this subject so you can catch her. Great. Bye, Kaya. So, yeah, why don't we count off just so it's a little easier. So we probably have about six. Let's do six. Good. So one group will be two. 
And so, uh, one, everyone know who won? Raise your hand if you're one. Look at each other. Good. Twos, raise your hand so you can see each other. You're going to meet right outside with your boots on. Two, okay. Threes, raise your hand. Fours, raise your hand. Fives. And sixes. Okay, good. So it's uh, five to three. Let's come back at uh, 20, 25 after, okay? And we'll just gather right around the, get a pen, and we'll gather right around the sheet of paper for the last half an hour or so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.